0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host Tim Patrick, and this is episode 95, January 9th through January 15th, 1863. Last week, we concluded the Battle of Stones River. We also fought the Battle of Parker's Crossroads, which was sort of a mixed bag For Nathan Bedford Forrest, sort of a victory, but then also sort of not at the same time. This week, we need to backtrack just a little bit and talk about a few events, including the Battle of Galveston and the raid on Van Buren, Arkansas. We also cover more recent events in the Battles of Springfield and Hartsville in Missouri. Before we do that, though, I do want to talk about some extra content that we have, We've been mentioning the second part of the two-part Gods and Generals movie review that's posted on the Patreon, and then actually we've done a little bonus uh, Patreon episode this week that ties in very well with Fredericksburg, Uh, so that should be appearing very soon here on that feed as well, so keep your your eyes out for that. It's going to be a slideshow of the slaughter pen farm and kind of talking through that and the prospect hill area which is not usually an area of the battlefield that I think most folks get to you know everyone knows marie's heights and the sunken road and it's it's probably easier to because that's downtown uh as well uh so if you're in the city of fredericksburg uh you're you're pretty much right there right so hopefully you find that interesting and you know once again The link to the Patreon is in the show description, and of course your donation would go toward the general upkeep of the show, so that's always greatly appreciated. So, let's check in on the aftermath of Chickasaw Bayou, and then the subsequent Battle of Arkansas Post. When last we left off with William T. Sherman, he had been repulsed at Chickasaw Bayou, north of Vicksburg. This move had combined with Grant's failure to move overland to put pressure on Vicksburg and Jackson, pulling troops away from their defenses on the Key River City. If you recall when we are talking about that army, we mentioned that it was hijacked. Command for that, some 30,000 men, was originally belonging to John McClernand, but due to some messaging errors that were intentional on the part of Grant and Halleck, Sherman left without McClernand. You see, as we may have stated in an earlier episode, McClellan had the ear of the president and was angling for his own independent army command. When we say that, though, uh, McClarnand was not necessarily a friend of Abraham Lincoln, necessarily, uh, but he was a very powerful political character that Lincoln needs to keep happy. So certainly there would be that angle that his administration would have to deal with. As it was, though, he would be placed in Grant's department, so not independent, but it would make him the superior to Sherman. You can imagine when he reunited with Sherman, he was not too happy. But Cump would make good on seating command, although he complained about how MacLernan was not the right guy for the job. He was political and obviously a glory seeker so that he could have that star on the rise, something that... We see throughout all kinds of examples in American history, you do well on the battlefield. Zachary Taylor comes to mind, William Henry Harrison comes to mind. That might lead you to the White House. Even a more recent example would be Dwight Eisenhower. While Chickasaw Bayou did not work, there was another target that could potentially be in the crosshairs. Sherman had already pondered taking this shot, so while he was relegated to Corps Command along with his pal Morgan, they would scheme along with their superior about capturing Fort Hyman at a place called Arkansas Post, which was the site of the last skirmish of the Revolution, meaning that the Post has been around for a long time. Fort Hyman was a square fort surrounded by a ditch. Note. Remember, Thomas Hyman did a lot of good for the Confederate defense of Arkansas, so the fort bared his name, although it was ordered to be built by Theophilus Holmes. Fort Hyman was important because it sat on the Arkansas River, which flows through Little Rock and into the northwest of the state, the same river flowing through Van Buren and Fort Smith. It also is where the White River meets, and an important road to Little Rock, adding to the significance. Confederates were able to use the fort as a base to raid on the Mississippi River. Reportedly, a Union supply vessel had been captured and taken there. A potential hideout for river pirates, as well as a choke point on the Arkansas, meant this would be a prize worthy for some recognition. Only 5,000 Confederates under Thomas Churchill defended the fort. So, for a 30,000-man army, along with reluctant naval support from David Porter, That would be potentially enough to do the job. Porter, surprisingly, also did not like McClernand, setting up a common theme. Most of the troops from the southern perspective were converted cavalry with carbines and weapons not suitable for longer-range warfare, so the odds were good for the north. January 9th would see the Union forces begin landing ground troops. Churchill had sent men north to establish a line directly in the route of march for the Union attackers. The plan was to potentially flank this position, but the move was not necessary, the Confederates pulling back down closer to the fort. There, they would establish a line of breastworks extending to the west, blocking the approach of the Union forces. Their flank would be protected by Post Bayou, January 10th would see the 13th and 15th Corps getting into place to assault the rebel works. In the meantime, Porter would send his fleet to pound the rebel guns directly in Fort Hindman. The USS DeKalb, Cincinnati, Louisville, Lexington, Rattler, Glide, and Monarch all steam forward to deliver a barrage on the rebel guns. Their efforts on the 10th effectively silenced the artillery in Fort Hindman although the Confederates were able to return fire somewhat effectively, inflicting a handful of casualties and some damage on the Union warships. At one point, the USS Rattler was stuck, with both the DeKalb and the Cincinnati having a handful of casualties. Both sides would talk about the ferocity of the cannonading. For the Confederates, they would mention how powerful the more numerous Union guns were. One account would state how a rebel comrade was torn in half by federal shells. Likewise, a member of the Union River Fleet would mention how the Confederates were able to fire directly through a porthole. The end of the 10th would see Sherman's men on the right flank, while Morgan's corps aligned on the left. An additional Union unit was set up on the Stillwell Peninsula, across from a bend in the Arkansas River. January 11th would see a more general assault by the Federal forces, although it would start later in the day, around 5 p.m. Sherman's division under Steele would send brigades under Charles Hovey and John Thayer in the assault on the left flank of the Confederates. Facing them would be a mix of Arkansas infantry and Texas troops under James Deschler. Charles Hovey was a Vermont native and Dartmouth graduate who worked as a principal before the war. He would be wounded in the arm during the battle and discharged in 1863 as a result. James Deschler was an Alabama native who had attended West Point and saw action on the frontier. He will go on to command troops under Claiborne, but will be killed at the Battle of Chickamauga later in 1863. The final brigade was commanded by Dunnington, who was actually a Confederate naval officer, and would not surrender to the infantry after the battle as a result. Thayer and Hovey would not see success in attacking Deschler. Brigades from David Stewart's division of Giles Smith and Thomas Kilby Smith would fare no better. Of Morgan's men, A.J. Smith's division would attack nearer to Fort Hindman. A brigade under Stephen Burbage would be infillated by the Confederates in this assault. Their loss would be some 349, almost a third of the total casualties. Peter Osterhaus would add in regiments in a direct move on Fort Hyman, but would be repulsed as well. All along the Rebel Line, there was bending, but it did not break. The Union assault being described as an irresistible thunderbolt. It was at this point where white flags would appear in the southern breastworks. This has been controversial, though, because Churchill would deny having ordered a surrender. At the time, some Confederate officers refused to believe it and fought on. At a certain point, though, the surrender became real. Some of the men had already stacked arms in defeat. With that, the Battle of Fort Hindman or Arkansas Post, was over. I think it is interesting because the Union attacks were very similar to those at Chickasaw Bayou. While the number difference was greater in this case, they were unable to break the enemy. It was not until the Southerners threw up white flags that there was a decision in the battle. While some Confederates may have escaped toward Little Rock, the casualties are sometimes listed as a total of 5,000, while only 60 killed and 80 wounded, the rest captured. Union losses were a total of 1,092. John McClernand would reportedly exclaim, Glorious, glorious, my star is in the ascendant. Grant, on the other hand, would not think the star was going anywhere. He considered the attack at Arkansas Post unnecessary and recalled McClernand back into Corps command. A move at Little Rock had been the next design phase in the operation, but there would be none of this for the Union Army of Mississippi. Preparations were going to be underway for the next attempt at Vicksburg instead. Obviously, Vicksburg is going to be a more high-priority target. If we think about going all the way back to the Anaconda Plan and uh, exactly what that entailed, then capturing the Mississippi River... And closing that off, effectively cutting the Confederacy in two, is going to be high on the priority list. Arkansas, we've already talked about, is extremely rural. You know, there's not a whole lot of development there. It's sometimes considered to be the least developed of the southern states. Still kind of like the Wild West there. And uh, if you've ever seen True Grit, then you know that's in Arkansas, right? So it, it kind of has that same Wild West vibe to it and i know that's a movie but i still i think pretty accurate for us to to think about so as far as a strategic value then arkansas and little rock probably can be put on the back burner right and once the mississippi is officially closed then that's just going to cut off that area anyway so there is that to consider as well speaking of arkansas though let's stay in the state and talk about the rate on van buren now, this is actually at the end of December of 1862, in the direct aftermath of the Battle of Prairie Grove, so we are having to reach a little farther back than usual. Remember that although Hindman ended up having a good showing against Blunt and Heron at Prairie Grove, he ended up retreating to Fort Smith and the Arkansas River. James Blunt and Francis Heron would decide to pursue the rebels, who had left only a regiment, each of cavalry and infantry, to block the Federal approach. These were dealt with easily, and the aggressive Blunt would be able to storm cavalry into Van Buren and capture the town. Three steamers were captured with their supplies and wounded. Hindman had given orders to destroy supplies and buildings in Fort Smith if necessary to prevent Union capture. Because of the quick strike at Van Buren, Confederate forces did carry out these orders burning stores and wharves, adding to the calamity. Blunt and Heron would hold a military parade the day after the raid on the 28th to celebrate their success and show off for the civilian population. They would withdraw further north, which is the final conclusion to the Prairie Grove campaign having officially come to a close. And it's definitely a campaign we can chalk up as a Confederate defeat. we don't have to go too awfully far back for some events in Galveston, Texas. A couple of episodes previous, we had the Union capture of the town by the Navy. This had been successful following a demand to surrender earlier in the year. Galveston was a prosperous port city, important to the exporting of cotton, so obviously it was a target for the Federals and something Confederates wished to potentially get back in their possession. Before the war, it was considered that the city was growing by 50% per year due to the cotton trade. Obviously, too, something to think about is that as the Confederate ports sort of get picked off one by one here, having somewhere for blockade runners is going to be important as well. A fleet of Navy ships occupied the harbor under the command of William Renshaw. Additionally, there were about 260 infantrymen in the town itself from the 42nd Massachusetts. On the Confederate side, John Bankhead Magruder had taken control of the department. In fact, Magruder had taken over for Paul Hebert, who was removed following his failure to hold on to the city. Magruder would want to make a splash in his new assignment, and this included disturbing the Union prospects for an invasion of Texas by Nathaniel Banks which was considered to be in the works. Having too few men, Magruder would hijack Sibley's Texas Brigade, which had been ordered to Louisiana to assist Richard Taylor in the defense of that state. Francis Lubbock, the Texas governor, would concur that there needed to be an effort to secure his state. Obviously, there were resources in Texas that could be potentially important for the Confederacy. Tom Green would be the commander of the infantry, while William Reed Scurry would command his cavalry, so we have some familiar faces and names here. Transformations were made on several vessels, arming them with cotton bales as makeshift armor. Major Leon Smith would be in control of the marine contingent, although he did not have an actual commission I have seen. Smith was an experienced seaman, serving in that capacity before the war. He would serve out the war in the West and eventually go on to operate a trading post in Alaska, where he was murdered by natives. Smith would have some veterans from the Texas Brigade serving as sharpshooters, referring to themselves as horse marines. Magruder would develop a bold plan along with his fellow officers. A joint naval and land operation would be conducted to take the Union ships by surprise. With pressure applied on the landward side, two cotton-clad vessels reinforced with bales to protect from enemy fire would sail into the enemy rear in an attempt to capture the Union ships. These ships would be at a very large disadvantage, as there were six Union ships compared to their two, minus the tenders who were defenseless. The CS Bayou City and the CS Neptune would prepare along with the ground troops on New Year's Eve 1862. Neptune, was armed with at least one gun, while the Bayou was armed with a ram. Amazingly, the Union forces were aware there may have been an attempt on Galveston. Renshaw had ordered barricades to be made on the wharf for defense, but it was considered that the rebels lacked the proper amount of infantry for a successful attack. On New Year's Day, they would begin the assault. The USS Westfield would be alerted to the Confederate naval presence and actually run aground in attempt at the inferior vessels. Confederate infantry would move across a railroad bridge to Galveston Island, engaging the rookie Union infantry. A major problem for the ground troops was that although there were only 200 some infantrymen, the six ships did have cannon that was sufficient enough to outrange anything the rebels had. There was an interesting attempt to wade through the shallows and storm the ships, but their boarding ladders were not tall enough to reach. Likewise, the ladders were not tall enough to span onto the wharf. Union cannon would rain down shot and canister on the southern infantry, forcing them to retire out of range. There's actually some accounts that I saw from members of the assault party that uh, went up into the buildings and the... Return fire was so great that they write about um, just how unnerving it was and how they uh, beat a hasty retreat uh, when the order was given. After the failed assault, the U.S. Navy ships would then spot the cotton clads, disabling the CS Neptune before it could ram and board any of the vessels. Even though they sank, the water was shallow enough so that sharpshooters stationed on the vessel could still pour effective fire, clearing the deck. While not a direct blow, the Neptune had struck a glancing blow, and it had disabled the anchor apparatus, releasing it and the associated cable, so the Harriet Lane would run aground. The CS Bayou City would successfully board the USS Harriet Lane, capturing the ship using a corvus, which was an ancient method for boarding lowering a large platform onto the enemy. Leon Smith would lead his contingent onto the enemy vessel. Tom Green was instrumental in rallying his men, especially in the face of additional naval support coming in the form of the USS Asahuasco. A lull in the fighting would produce demands of surrender on behalf of the Southerners, sort of a ruse given the circumstances, but it was considered that perhaps the Bayou City was a legit ironclad ram, And if that was the case, it would certainly be a problem for the ships that were stationed there at Galveston. Preparations were made to withdraw, the infantry on the wharf surrendering. Renshaw was still aboard the USS Westfield, which had run aground earlier in the fight. Rather than surrender the vessel, he would seek to destroy it. During this operation, Renshaw and 12 of his crew were killed when he returned to the ship, concerned at the lack of an explosion which, unfortunately, was only delayed. The Union ships Clifton, Owasco, Corpheus, and Sacam would all escape out away from the port despite continued demands for surrender. Confederates did manage to capture some 700 tons of coal and a large quantity of potatoes, as well as a handful of vessels, including, of course, the USS Harriet Lane. I've seen some estimates giving the amount of Union casualties as high as 150, which excluded the amount of men captured from the garrison. 26 Confederates were killed, with 117 wounded. Magruder would try to increase his prestige by setting a trap for U.S. Texas cavalry arriving with the intent on raiding into the state interior, but the ruse failed and the regiment was able to escape. On the 11th, a new federal squadron would arrive to take Galveston back into Union hands. The commander of the venture was North Carolinian Henry Bell of the USS Brooklyn, but he would spy a sail on the horizon as he approached. Dispatching the USS Hatteras, a six-gun sidewheeler, he would be alarmed when that vessel was mauled. The sails belonged to the CSS Alabama, and her captain, Raphael Sims, wasted no time in destroying the enemy vessel. Bell would call off the attempt in another setback for the Union. Galveston would be in rebel hands for the remainder of the war until Kirby Smith's surrender to Gordon Granger in June of 1865. Following the surrender, Granger would announce the emancipation of the former slave population for the state, this day becoming known as Juneteenth. Sibley's men had been needed in New Iberia, where there was a federal incursion of Bayou Teche, a route to get further inland from New Orleans toward Port Hudson and Vicksburg, which we will talk about in a future episode. Godfrey Weitzel, who you remember from Georgia Landing, would lead his men there in early January, and despite losing Commodore Thomas Buchanan, would force the destruction of the CSS Cotton, which would otherwise have hindered motion up by Utesh. Lieutenant Stevens, who had commanded the CSS Arkansas on her final voyage, was actually killed on the CSS Cotton during this engagement. Whitehall would call off an attack on Fort Bisland in Louisiana, but the stage is going to be set for future operation, which we will get into here coming up in April. In the meantime, however... The situation is going to look good for the Confederacy in this region. Magruder would write that the word Spartan should be in the same category as Texan, showing the shifting momentum and the connection Texans will have with Magruder during his tenure as the department head for the remainder of the war. I know we are going to do a little jumping around here, but I also want to cover John Marmaduke's raid into Missouri. After the withdrawal of Hindman and the raid on Van Buren, there was an effort by the Confederate cavalry Commander to make sure the Federals did not advance deeper into Arkansas, or even divert troops back into Missouri. We have already highlighted in our episodes on Pea Ridge and Prairie Grove how complicated the supply situation was in this theater. The Union had a depot of supplies stationed at Springfield, the Confederate capture of which would be a real score. Now, Springfield had been under federal occupation since 1862, the town actually being cleaned up by the northerners after the rebel occupation. Wounded from all three of the major battles in the area had been sent to the Missouri town, showing exactly how rural and important the settlement was. Marmaduke and around 4,000 troopers would move into Missouri in early 1863 to accomplish this task. I've seen some estimates that show... His number is probably closer to 2,500, though. The Federals would actually receive word that he had something like 6,000 men, which would have been a real problem. Despite thinking there to be an element of surprise, the column was spotted, a fact that was reported to General Egbert Brown, commanding Springfield. Brown was originally from New York, serving as a whaler in his youth before moving to Toledo, Ohio. He will continue to operate in Missouri until his removal later in the war. Schofield had ordered Brown to fortify the town with earthworks to protect against any guerrilla raids, especially while the field armies were operating in Arkansas. In 1863, Brown had the option to retreat with his seemingly inferior force in the face of the enemy. This option was actually seriously considered, but Brown was convinced by subordinate officers and the pro-Union townsfolk to stay and defend the city. Rather than abandon the supplies and perhaps face an abrupt end to a military career, like we've seen in other places, Brown resolved to stay and fight. Militia units would be called in to defend Springfield. Now, this time, there were state militia units, and we also have the enrolled Missouri militia, the EMM, which would be military-aged males forced into service, something that would prove to have mixed results in the quality of soldiers. We'll talk about it a little bit when we get into an upcoming episode on guerrillas but as you could imagine if you have individuals who don't support the union but are less enthusiastic about fighting in the war anymore and they're in missouri and you're forcing them into military service then that could be a problem especially if you wanted them to have committed resolve in the face of the enemy in a move from one of the best war movies of all time, Zulu, Brown also arms men from hospitals, forming them into a unit called the Quinine Brigade. These troops, combined with small numbers, Brown had to operate against guerrilla activity, and they would be the backbone of the defense. Several forts, uniquely named Forts 1 through 5, would defend the city, designed actually by LaRue Harrison, who commanded the 1st Arkansas U.S. Cavalry which we actually mentioned in a previous episode. Able-bodied males had actually been pressed into service for the creation of these works. Numbers 2 and 4 would face most of the action, number 1 being the largest and outside of town. Marmaduke had divided his forces into attacking columns, partisan forces under Joseph Porter not linking up with his brigades under Shelby and Macdonald but he did have Quantrill's Rangers with him. Joe Shelby would begin probing the Union line, looking for weaknesses. A move on the right would be repulsed, but the Confederates occupying a college building turned prison in the relative center of town to engage number four would prove effective. House-to-house fighting would characterize the battle, Brown burning some buildings to deny cover for the enemy. A Federal gun was actually captured by Shelby's regiments who counterattacked some gains made against McDonald's troopers. The fiercest fighting would occur on the right, and we have a short quote of this action which included a back and forth battle around the town cemetery. This quote is actually from a war correspondent. The fight now became general. The principal fighting was west of the fort, near the college formerly used as a prison. This college is of brick and is surrounded by stockade The rebels obtained possession of it and found it almost as safe as a regular fort. They also stationed themselves in houses. Our men were in and behind other houses. Some of them lay behind fences. The firing was constant. Our organization seemed to be at an end. It was every man for himself and God for us all. But instead of running for themselves, the men fought bravely. A last effort by Shelby would come to naught as darkness set into the field. Despite potentially shaky performances by the northern militia units, the defenders held on, Marmaduke withdrawing during the night, ending what is known as the Second Battle of Springfield. I've seen different casualty numbers, but it generally runs around 130 killed and wounded on the Union side, compared to around 150 on the Confederate side. Most importantly though, General Brown had done the job, saving the Federal Supply Depot. Springfield would not be seriously threatened by a Confederate force for the remainder of the war. Marmaduke would actually write about the success of the raid, despite Springfield still being in the hands of the Federals. Union supplies had been secured, including a cannon and prisoners taken, but it just goes to show how some of these reports can be twisted to imply accomplished objectives. We will press on with another action in the Marmaduke Raid of 1863 in the Battle of Hartville. Now Hartville was where the other forces of Marmaduke had gone to rendezvous. Colonel Joseph Porter commanded these men, who had captured the town and commenced to raid beyond. While Marmaduke made good on his arrival to Hartville, Springfield having diverted his attention for a brief amount of time, a Union relief column would arrive under the command of Colonel Samuel Merrill. This force comprised around 800 men, mostly infantry, with some cavalry. Hartfield already in the possession of the Confederates, they would move towards Springfield, but Marmaduke was on his way from that direction and potentially was going to encircle and defeat the new Federals. Marmaduke was afraid he would be encircled himself if he did not act quickly, so he made sure to secure his line of retreat before turning to the new enemy threat. Merrill in the meantime had set up on a strong defensive position that was partly covered. Shelby and Porter would assault the concealed Union line unsuccessfully. At one point, the Union troops seemingly fell back, but a regiment had remained in place cashing the Confederates off guard, mortally wounding Colonel Porter. Marmaduke was satisfied with not taking the enemy position and withdraw back into Arkansas. Merrill would also retreat, not pressing the Confederates. Both sides would claim victory in the fight, with losses of 7 dead and 64 wounded on the Federal side, 22 killed and 125 wounded on the Confederate side. The South did lose several of their officers, including the key guerrilla leader, Colonel Porter. Let's pause there for now. We had a very busy week. First, we had the Battle of Arkansas Post, which had some redemption for Sherman's forces after Chickasaw Bayou. We had a raid on Van Buren, Arkansas, which closes out the Prairie Grove campaign. Galveston has been recaptured, and John Bankhead Magruder will likewise also receive redemption in the process. If you recall, Malvern Hill does not go particularly well for John Bankhead Magruder, so he is seeking to sort of clear his name and get some vindication there. So he does in the capture of Galveston and he's going to hang his hat on that for the rest of the war. John Marmaduke raided into Missouri and was turned back both at Springfield and Hartville. Next week, we need to talk about the real conclusion of the Fredericksburg campaign in the mud march and in the process say goodbye to Ambrose Burnside as commander of the army of the Potomac. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.